If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess because they're nerds over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you, and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940, or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you, the listener, can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions, which is me, and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Dr. Gibran Pasha, assistant dean of student affairs and associate professor for the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine, host of the Lean In podcast and who also offers workshops on implicit bias. We talked to Gibran about implicit bias in medicine and elsewhere, how Oklahoma is topographically more interesting than Kansas, and how the brain makes everyone a little bit biased. It's true. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Gibran Pasha on the podcast today. Gibran, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. We listen, Chris and I are excited. We're still excited mm-hmm. to talk to anybody post pandemic. But I, once I one discovered your podcast, this podcast is named Lean In. Check it out everywhere podcasts can be found. And looking into you, I saw someone post your speech you gave to the Booker T graduates, which is definitely on my bucket list of, some, of things to do is to be a speaker at a graduation. I mean, you might have to speak at Broken Arrow where we graduated. Yeah, right? that's you true. you really want to go back there? I'll be like, listen, Broken Arrow, <laughs> you're a town of idiots. I'm <laughs> disappointed in you constantly. Please leave. Graduates, please leave this town and do better. That would be my speech. You said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to derail. Yes, that might be the earliest Broken Arrow derail we've had in this podcast, of which there are many. But you are a doctor and you work with other medical professionals on dealing with the implicit bias that is in the medical field. So for something that broad, can you tell me like, where do you start? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's not something that I've um, done for my entire career. Um, it's something that uh, I found on the internet. Um, you know how it goes. You're looking at something totally unrelated and then you stumble down a hole and you 
look up a few hours later and you have some new knowledge, right? And so for me, it was this implicit bias stuff and I'd heard about it, but I didn't really know exactly what it was. And the more I read about it, what really grabbed me was that I came to the understanding that although I have really good intentions and I want to give my patients the best care that I possibly can, there are times, maybe more times than I would like, that my own biases towards those patients impacts that care. And that was a rattling a little bit for me. And in addition to patient care, I'm a teacher. I'm as much a teacher as I am a doctor. And so I thought, well, I can teach someone how to take care of a heart failure patient. I can probably teach my students and residents and my coworkers how to learn about implicit bias and manage bias. And the way that I start, and I think it's really important, and there's a whole lot of ways to talk about these difficult conversations. I come from the position that we need to destigmatize it. I think people have avoided these conversations because they make us uncomfortable as they should, but I don't think we need to feel guilty or ashamed about our biases. And if we're able to destigmatize it, and, and one way of doing that is say everybody has it, we do. Whether you realize it or not, you got it. Part of it is the way our brains work. Part of it is the exposures and experiences we've had in this very biased system that we live in. And it's okay as long as we're willing to do the work to uncover our biases and take steps to mitigate them. I say mitigate because I don't think we can actually rid ourselves of implicit bias, but we can do better. And if you're willing to learn, face that discomfort, you can do better. And so that's kind of my challenge for people when I'm talking about implicit bias, whether it's in healthcare or any other walk of society. I think we talk about this a lot. Like, our, the human brain is designed to stereotype. That it's is lazy. It. It's, the brain it's, is lazy. It's lazy, and it's like an evolutionary trait that is built into our brains. And so it's, it's not trying to be like the Stephen Colbert used to joke about how he was colorblind, so he didn't see race. But the whole point is, like, we're all a little bit racist because all of our brains make these assumptions about people, and it's recognizing that and dealing with your own. But you, you're right. We, there is no sort of academic course or thing that people go to where you are trained how to deal with that. Yeah, you're right. Our brains are computers, right? And they're little three-pound computers that are really, really efficient. And that's why we are human, and that's why we are able to do the things we are as humans. The downside of that is with that efficiency comes some error. And bias comes from the times when our brains think they have enough information to make a decision or take an action, and they don't. And the byproduct of that is bias. And so now more than ever, I think given the social climate and um, all of the activism that's going on, people are starting to talk about it. People are starting to integrate this into curriculum, and that's obviously a lot more difficult in this state that we live in with the, the laws that are being passed. But the work is going to continue. We've just got to find a way to you know, come, come down the back alley and teach it. But we're going to teach the stuff much more so than 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And the more attention we can generate to this subject, more people are talking about it. And if we could just get people talking about it, um, we're, we're on the right track. Well, and you mentioned that, you know, it's there's training around this in, in every walk of life, but it feels like the stakes in the medical prof profession are considerably higher than, say, for somebody who like like me, who works in a regular corporate job. Not to minimize the impact it can have on people there, but in the medical profession, it's, it's people's lives. Yeah. If I were to rank uh, the areas in terms of stakes, I'd say education, criminal justice, and healthcare at the very top. I mean, we are literally dealing with life and death every day in some circumstances. And so it's so important. Uh, I think the newer generation of, of physicians 
and healthcare workers um, are a little bit more used to soft skills that we're teaching. And they understand that um, being a healthcare provider doesn't begin and end at the bedside anymore like it did 50 years ago. There's so much more uh, to taking care of a patient. And part of that is recognizing what you bring to that partnership and how that can impact their care. And so it's profoundly important for the powers that be in healthcare, these organizations, the American Medical Association, uh, you know, those large healthcare institutions to prioritize this stuff. And they really are starting to. Because there's no part of medical school that deals with this. It is all sort of the hands-on dealing with the human body, not how to be a person. Yeah, traditionally, the answer would be no, there isn't. Um, but that is changing. Um, here in Tulsa at the School of Community Medicine, I teach several courses about these sorts of things. Actually, I, I think I have one coming up in a couple of weeks where we, we talk about this stuff. And I think it really takes these institutions that are willing to look at these social factors, right? The social determinants of health and within that package of what we call social determinants of health is racism and discrimination. And within that is implicit bias. And so as we know that there are a lot more things than just the health care that somebody receives that, that you know, contributes to the health or poor health of a community, the more that we can get comfortable talking about these, these topics. So for any of our listeners that kind of maybe have trouble picturing what implicit bias looks like in action for whether it's a doctor or hospital. What are some kind of concrete examples of that? Yeah, there's a lot. We tend to think of different groups of people that are impacted the most, right? These are our underrepresented minorities. These are our women. Um, these are our people of lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. Some of the things that stand out to me, the one that gets the most attention now because the data is so glaring, uh, is the fact that Native American women and Black women die two and three times more than white women from complications of childbirth. And some of that has to do with social factors. Some of that has to do with the fact that Native women, Black women tend to get their care in uh, lesser quality hospitals. But even when you control for that, there is a certain amount of bias from the healthcare workforce that contributes to these negative outcomes. We know that Black and brown adults and children are a lot less likely to have their pain treated. Um, there was a study in the emergency department where people came in with broken bones. We're talking broken arms, broken legs, broken collarbones. And black and brown people were a lot less likely to have their pain treated aggressively uh, with opioids, which are very appropriate for broken bones, as you can imagine. Um, we know that is also the case for women. There's a narrative that if a man is in pain, men are tough, they're strong, they must really be in pain. Let's get their pain taken care of. There's also a narrative that women are emotional. And so when a woman is in pain, well, could it be anxiety or could it be emotional pain? Could it be depression? Maybe we should start there. And that leads to women having their pain undertreated. So there's a, those are a few things. I mean, we, we see it in almost uh, every category of disease you can find bias. Well, in the... The equality indicators that Tulsa came up with, you know, one of the things that keep getting brought up is the life expectancy difference between North Tulsa and the rest of Tulsa, which was, I think, started at 10 years difference, and now it's eight. So, yay, I guess. But that plays into all of those factors you just mentioned, doesn't it? It does. It does. We know, and this is actually kind of a, a bold statement, but I feel comfortable in saying 
that the care that someone receives from their healthcare provider plays less of a role in their health than social factors, like where you live, the food that's available in your neighborhood, the racism and discrimination that you face, how much money you make, how much education, quality education you have. We know that those factors contribute significantly, and there's nothing more tributary to health than income. It's a linear correlation. The more money you make, on average, the healthier you are. Um, at every point on that line, it, it, it's a it's a linear um, correlation. And so the way that I, if I can use an analogy that's not mine, but it's pretty cool, it, it, the way I think about healthcare is like a roaring river. And along the banks of the river are healthcare providers, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacies, all the technology, right? We're lined the banks of the river. And within that water are the patients. And if we look downstream a couple hundred yards, there's a waterfall. And if they go over, we're never getting them back, right? So we're doing all we can to pull them to shore, but there's too many in the water. There's not enough us, right? That's how our current healthcare system works. We spend three and a half trillion dollars per year on healthcare in the United States, more than any other country. And yet, yeah, and our outcomes are about seventh or eighth compared to, you know, similar countries. What we have to do is retreat upstream, right? Get to these patients before they get in the water. And that's the answer to that is not preventative care. That helps. The answer to that is addressing these social factors, right? And so all of those things uh, and, and within that implicit bias, you know, the impact of racism, discrimination, all of that plays a major role in shaping the, the health or poor health of a community. So you talked about how you didn't, you found, you, you kind of knew, but you sort of discovered this while researching things. We're recording this one day after Juneteenth. And so my question is, and I know that there are not a lot of black men doctors and that there's a multitude of racist reasons why that is. But do you feel like, did you feel like you had to be the one to talk about this? Or did you feel sort of a level of exhaustion? Like, ugh, I have to talk about this. Great question. No, I didn't necessarily feel compelled to talk about it. Um, I think one of my skills is reaching people. And I found, I don't know that I knew it before, but I found within this work, um, I have had found the ability to make these difficult conversations a little easier to have. And the feedback that I've gotten when having these conversations, when people come up to me and say, I expected that to go a whole different way. I get it now. How can I do better? How can I help? It's, it's reassuring, right? It, it surely um, pushes you to do better. That being said, I wouldn't be where I am as a black male, young black male physician without the support of all the people that helped me get here um, of all nationalities and backgrounds. And so I do feel a little bit of responsibility to pay it forward, um, you know, through mentorship and helping people take advantage of opportunities, but also shedding light on the fact that, you know, today, there are less black men in medicine, medical school, than in the 1970s, literally less. And so I'll do all I can to kind of raise the flag and raise awareness and also try to make the next decade better than the previous. So obviously, I mean, we've talked about a lot of really big issues around, around health care, and you obviously can't tackle all of them. But do you see some of those same implicit biases? in things like, you know, admission policies and things like that in medical schools? And is that part of, you know, what 
keeps people of color from becoming doctors? That's part of it. We, we know that standardized tests are inherently biased to certain communities and people of certain backgrounds. So that, that, that contributes. We know that the biases of interviewers um, are going to um, have a negative impact on certain groups more than others. All that being said, I, I couldn't s- sit here with you all and say that medical schools, colleges of medicine aren't doing a lot of work to try to mend this issue. The problem, I think the overarching problem is the pipeline is dry. There just aren't people of color, specifically black men applying to medical school. And so as healthcare institutions like the School of Community Medicine, we have these programs, these outreach pipeline programs to get in contact with high school kids from diverse backgrounds and introduce them to medicine. We're finding out that's, if that's the first point of contact, it's too late. These pipeline programs, these outreach programs have to extend into middle school. They have to extend into elementary school uh, and set the stage and, and create a, a pathway uh, for these students earlier on in their, their lives. One of our four, uh, uh, previous guests, I think it was Tyrants who said this, mentioned that for a lot of young black men like him growing up, now for him, it was specifically in the context of technology, jobs, engineering, things like that, that they had trouble picturing themselves in that. You know, whether it was the lack of support they got in the schools or or whatever else or what the world and media is telling them, basically that that they shouldn't strive for that because they're not good enough. I mean, is it something similar with medical professions? Yeah. If you don't see another black physician, how do you know that that's even something that you can obtain? Right. Um, we actually did a, have a unique study, with a couple of our black medical students, where we looked at. How many black doctors are there in our country right now? It's about 4%. Right? We compared that to a place where you wouldn't necessarily think there's a lot of diversity, Hollywood. We actually looked at all of the medical TV shows to analyze how many black doctors are on TV. And Hollywood blows the real world away. And the reason I thought of that study was because the black doctors that I knew were the black doctors that I saw on ER and Chicago Hope and a little bit later, Grey's Anatomy. About 25% of the doctors wow. on television are black. <laughs> so wow. you, it's like, wow, Hollywood, that's coming out of Hollywood? But it's important, right? Because whether you see it in the real world or for me, when I was a little kid, I saw it on TV, but that was enough for me to think, well, I could do that, right? And so it is important to see. And I think that's why uh, the pipeline programs that we do um, a host for the kids in the community are important. And one thing I'll say um, to actually, literally, I, it's important for them to see another Black doctor. The only time I wear my white coat is when I'm around those kids because I think they need to see a Black man in a white coat. Um, and so we just try to provide that role model. We try to give them mentors. We just try to make them comfortable in knowing I could do that too. So that's where conversations about representation come in. Cause like, it's one of those things where as a white person, you, you know, especially as a white Jewish person, like there were careers I knew I could easily be because I was surrounded by people who were doing those things. And so you never question that. 
know, so my dream of being a Supreme Court justice will probably go unfulfilled. But <laughs> ha- had I gone to law school, like I could have at least gone that direction had I wanted to. But here's a, I want to ask a little fun question to liven up the mood. Um, so you went to the University of Kansas for both undergrad and for medical school. So topographically, which state's more boring to you, Kansas or Oklahoma? Because Lawrence, Kansas, hilly. The rest of Kansas, yeah. not so hilly. Kind of like Tulsa. So I want to preface this by saying the Kansas City that I know is on the Missouri side. Mm. And I think that's important. Isn't that, isn't that the superior Kansas City? It is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's where my parents are from. So I'm not biased. But um, <laughs> I would say that Kansas, save for Lawrence, Kansas, is much more boring than Oklahoma. <laughs> Uh, at least we have that Uh, i just i remember a childhood vacation drive to colorado where we went north through kansas and i was like my god there is nothing to look at for hours at least western oklahoma has things has mountains yeah no true statement yeah yeah western kansas boring sorry western kansas don't add us Uh, many of your podcast episodes are about the criminal justice system and it's also inherent biases the criminal justice system is one of those problems you're like, what do I do other than the district attorneys that we are allowed to vote for? Or in Oklahoma, the large amount of judges that we have to vote for that I'm never able to do enough research on beforehand. Like, what do you tell people is something that they should be paying attention to or something that they can do? That's another really good question. I think uh, for one is educate yourself. I think that's first and foremost, if you want to have a stance on something, you need to know what you're standing for. And and so there's a lot of places where you can kind of educate yourself. If you have a platform uh, to stand up for something, use it. I mean, that's that's what I do. I'm I'm not um, terribly versed in the criminal justice system. I I know enough to have a conversation about some of these topics, Um, but I do have a platform and that's what, you know, I've I've used my podcast uh, for uh, for a couple of episodes to to use that platform. Be aware of the legislation that's coming through, um, especially local legislation. I mean, that's the way we can really make an impact uh, and advocate uh, for these bills that are coming uh, through. Well, those are, I think, the three really simple ways that you can, can can make a difference. And you don't have to be in that space to to help out. Um, I, that's what I've found. I, you know, I, there are a lot of things that I have interest in doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of things that I'm good at, but there's a lot of things that I have interest in. And just because I'm a physician, you know, um, one thing that I told uh, the students at the graduation um, commencement was uh, what you do for a living is not who you are. What you do for a living. Uh, And you may have a lot of different interests. And so I think it's important so we don't let what we do for a living define us, either good or bad. Um, because we are kind of multidimensional and we have a lot going on. And so for me, yeah, I'm a physician, but it's not who I am. Um, who I am is someone who's passionate about making this place better and, and having, helping obtain opportunities for, for everyone. So that's, that's kind of how I approach things. At least I try to. We often mention the guests, our city councilors are generally pretty accessible and you'd be surprised how few people are actually reaching out to them. So if you get a group of people to reach out to them, they'll listen because that tells them that there's people out there who care and are paying attention. So whether it actually gets them to change a vote or not, it at least tells them that somebody's listening. And 
they might do something. Yeah, I think you have to be careful to assume that it's already on their radar. It very well might not even be on their radar. And a phone call, email from from you, you know, their constituent may put it on the radar. Uh, and sometimes that's just enough. Just a reminder to our listeners, both city councilors and state representatives and state senators, that is not a full-time job. It is not paid to be a full-time job. Those people are, one, doing other things. And on top of that, at least as far as the state bill process goes, they work, all the bills are submitted long before they actually get voted on. They have a three-month sprint until they're done. So, you know, you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention at specific times. Let's talk about TELSA a little bit. So, what's funny, like, it's been a year and a half now of us talking about crazy things that just happened in Tulsa, but we experienced the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. We just celebrated what I think was one of the biggest Juneteenth celebrations in the country. And the question is, okay, like there's a lot of good energy about dealing with the issues of Tulsa. What happens now? I don't know. Yeah. And and again, I I feel bad, like always asking my guests of color this question, like, well, what can we do as white people? (laughs) But what I think I actually mean by that question is, okay, what do I tell white people to pay attention to now to keep their eye on? Because, you know, energy fades and attention fades and we move on to whatever thing is happening in our lives. But the city of Tulsa continues on with its own multitude of fights and issues and inequality that exists. Yeah, I was somewhat joking when I said that. I always have thoughts on things, so I will definitely provide some, some, some thoughts that I have. What I would say is that the black voice, the collective black voice, the collective minority voice has never been enough and it will never be enough. I think what we've seen with the momentum that we've we've achieved in this last, you know, last year or so is that when we have white allies, people who are in power in our society, when we have them as allies, one to just say, help us understand. Two, to just ask, how can I help? And three, to help is a lot in moving the momentum forward. And so I think just continuing to seek understanding from from white folks, I think it's going to be helpful uh, to understand that although we're fighting for our equality uh, still in 2021, that it is not our responsibility. Um, and so you really have to be careful of putting that on the backs of the group that is, in a sense, handcuffed already. We still need your help. We need your help more now more than ever. But I think it has been really refreshing for me to see all the allyship that I have. And I have, even though we've been in a pandemic, and we haven't been able to meet in person. I have developed more relationships uh, with people I didn't know white people that I didn't know over the last year than I probably ever have. And it's because of those who reached out to say, hey, I don't know what to say, but I want you to know I'm here for you. Um, Or those who reached out with specific questions, those who reached out to say, how can I help? That's been a lot. I think it's effective. Um, And I would say we just got to continue to do that and to know we're still a long way away from from where we need to be. But the momentum is is picking up. once the bright lights of the centennial kind of fade, we just got to make sure that we can continue to push forward. So with you mentioned that some other medical schools and medical organizations are starting to take a more of a look at implicit bias. 
So are you seeing programs like yours at, at other medical schools? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of which I'm being brought in to, to, to teach, but also very large organizations um, taking um, not just you know, verbal stances on this, but putting their, their money where their mouth is to put resources behind this. One organization that I, I belong to is the American College of Physicians, which is the second largest physician group in the world. I think it has over 100,000 members. They asked me to do a webinar for, for all of their members, and that was, that was about a year and a half ago, um, a two-part webinar on implicit bias in healthcare. Um, and so that is reaching a large audience. I know the American Medical Association, which is the largest physician group in the world, um, has prioritized these sorts of things. This momentum tends to come from the coast uh, inward, uh, and we are seeing even schools within the heartland, schools in the south, that are also um, prioritizing the same things, including our, our School of Medicine uh, in Tulsa and in Oklahoma City. Have you had the opportunity to work with any other local medical schools? Yeah, I've done a lot of work with OSU. So the only other medical school in Tulsa is Oklahoma State. Um, I've done a lot of work with them. I've done uh, a lot of uh, work uh, in kind of surrounding areas as well. I'm going to UT Southwestern in the fall to do some work with implicit bias. Um, I've been out to Kentucky, University of Kentucky. Um, I'm doing some work with um, Kaiser Permanente out in LA uh, sometime this fall, um, doing some work with implicit bias. So yeah, I've, I've, I've been busy. When the pandemic happened, I, I thought that all of this stuff was going to be put on hold, but what it allowed me to do was be in three different states in one day. And so yeah, I just got, right. it got a lot more busy like it did for, for a lot of people. So you talked about how we aren't our jobs. We have different interests. So what are you into that's not related to your job at all? Like, what do you do in your free time? Like, do you like sports? Do you like reading books? Do you like movies? I love movies and television. I love to travel. That's been a struggle for those of us who like to travel this past year. That's probably one of my favorite things uh, to do. I recently took up golf. So I've gone from sucking to just sucking a little bit, uh, but progress. Uh, so that's, I've kind of developed a, an obsession with golf of late. So that's been fun. So if uh, you're a doctor, do you have to play golf? Is that part of? You part know, <laughs> I, I didn't feel the pressure. I just, you know, I resisted it for as long as I could. And it's just, not that I'm old, but I'm older. It's a good way to stay active without really hurting yourself mm -hmm. and I'm um, somewhat competitive, but not that competitive. So it just, it fits pretty well with my mm -hmm. personality. And, you know, if you get good enough, you feel like, okay, I'll go travel and golf. And so that was part of it. So it'll be oh, a nice little, a uh, little hobby, hobby for me. Well, now that you are a doctor, do you find it's very difficult to watch medical TV shows like medical dramas? Yeah. I can't tell you the last time I saw them. <laughs> I, I like the ones that are just funny. Right. So, Scrubs. Yeah. Right. I, okay. Every doctor I know is is okay with Scrubs is the one they like because it's not really about medicine. Yeah. About, uh, yeah. But it'll make you cry every once well, in a while. Yeah, it sneaks up on yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. They're 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 out front with they're they're just it's just outrageous. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So they so we can usually fall in line with that. So other than that, I don't necessarily watch that that often. But that's probably one that I that don't roll my eyes at during <laughs> the whole show at mm -hmm. least. Yeah, that's the, pro that's the problem with those shows about professions. Luckily, I didn't watch that one show about podcasting. So, <laughs> there was uh, a show about podcasting? It didn't last long, <laughs> yeah. I think it was a guy who was a podcaster, and like he started hearing God through his headphones. It was real weird. But yeah, Scrub seems to be, that's my brother-in-law, who's a psychi uh, pediatric psychiatrist. That's the one medical show he likes. And I feel like, definitely, 
if you're going to be a psychiatrist, you should definitely deal with some implicit bias stuff because everyone assumes if you're a psychiatrist that you are good at examining yourself, which is not true at all. No, no. no one well, is. Yeah, it's probably less true for a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, there's a weird, I think, a spectrum or like balance between n- knowledge and how that knowledge gets put into practice, especially when you're talking about yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, definitely a certain degree of self-reflection that you're, you have to be willing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just because we do a lot of kind of soul searching with our patients doesn't mean we, we do it with our, ourselves. And, and we know that healthcare workers are the worst patients anyway. So, <laughs> you know, it's like a do as I told, not as I do sort of thing. Which is not great. I, just, I need to schedule an appointment to see my doctor. Actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah. So a doctor to a doctor, what is that conversation like? Like how much WebMDing are you doing before that appointment? No. Every single time. <laughs> so, so we don't, we don't have the lay person's internet. We have the doctor. I've heard that, about the doctor's yeah, internet. Yeah, you know, there's something that's called up to date that you have to buy a subscription to to, to use, and that's kind of like our Google. Well, it makes sense because there's no way you can keep all of that in your head. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is not, you know, the 1920s when there are only like four medicines that you know, and, <laughs> and four diagnoses, and everybody was just bleeding people and all that, right? We, there's so much information. Oh, so much information. One, I'm amazed at our medical students, uh, how they can manage all that, because there's even more information for them than, than it was for me when I was in medical school. And it wasn't that long ago for me. I started med school in 2006, right? Um, so there are a lot of resources. Um, I think medical training uh, teaches us how to apply all of this information, right? And so if someone were to say, hey, if I had access to that information, I could be a doctor, good luck. Well, I wouldn't say it's that simple. Because they are, you just have to really know when to tap into certain resources and how to apply certain information. But I will not sit up here and say it's all up here because it, it surely isn't. And I don't, <laughs> so I don't anyone, want it to be and, here. But anyone can still be a doctor, though, right? <laughs> like, it's like anyone can be a doctor with the training, not just anyone can be a doctor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. So you mentioned you enjoy sports. So I'm curious from your perspective, when you're watching sports, say, do you watch football? I do. Okay. So when you see, like, the collisions and and the injuries and stuff like that. Do you, I'm just curious, is it different from your perspective where I see it? I'm like, oh, that's bad. I mean, do you sit there trying to diagnose it? Do you sit there wondering what's, I mean. Thankfully not. Okay. <laughs> I think uh, probably because I was a sports fan well before I was in medicine. I'm a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan. And so when I, when I watch the Chiefs game, I'm jumping off the couch. I'm, you know, throwing my hands up in there. I'm yelling. The dog's running to the other room. <laughs> My wife's leaving the room as well. I mean, it's that's it's I'm all in. Thankfully, I don't have to worry about all of that stuff because also I, I'm not in sports medicine. I'm not an orthopedist. Yes. I'm not a neurologist. And mm-hmm. so some of that stuff is is, is just not within my wheelhouse. So that kind of helps. Well, what is your specialty, by the way? So my specialty is internal medicine. It's the, the specialty without a specialty, <laughs> if you will. It's, it's I think a good way to put it is an adult medicine specialist. So um, I don't see pregnant women. I don't see children. Um, I don't do surgery, um, but if someone comes to, and I'm in the hospital, so I don't have an outpatient clinic. So when someone comes to the hospital, let's say they have a pneumonia or they're in heart failure, maybe they had a heart attack or they have an infection somewhere, chances are you're going to be seeing an internal medicine. Doctor. So I, actually talking about football makes me think that recently the, the NFL had to real, reveal their own implicit bias with how they were um, dealing with CTE, that they actually had... Um, lower cognitive baselines for their African-American players. And actually that came out and had to change. 
And it just seems like that's another pretty big example of implicit bias in medicine where they actually had set lower baselines for different people to determine whether or not they had the medical condition of CTE. And that was mind blowing. Yeah. That uh, one, that they were willing to reveal that, but more so that that was actually going on in 2021. Yeah. That was mind blowing uh, to me. And I think they're going to financially, they're going to pay for it. Yeah. It really takes me back to that whole idea of stereotype threat. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, as a black men, black women, some of us battle with that expectation that we aren't as smart. It actually makes me think of this really interesting study. If we have a minute for yeah, me to tell this, this uh, talk about this study, I think it was out of the University of Michigan, and it was about stereotype threat. And if you don't know what it is, I think the study will shed some light on it. So the researchers set up a miniature golf course, and the participants were a group of white students and a group of black students. So when the group of white students were to complete the miniature golf course, they were told that this miniature golf course was a measure of athletic ability. And they found that for the white guys that attacked this course, just hearing that it was a measure of athletic ability dropped their scores because of that stereotype that white men aren't athletic. For the black men that did that, when they were told that it was a measure of athletic ability, it didn't affect their scores at any way. On the flip side, they also told individuals that it was a measure of intellectual ability. And so when they told white guys that, hey, this is a measure of intellectual ability, it didn't impact their score at all. They were able to complete it uh, without any issues. When they told the black participants that it was a measure of intellectual ability, it did impact their scores. And so um, what that study reveals is that one stereotype threat is real. And so just living with an expectation that or if you're a white man and you're not supposed to be athletic, that can affect your athletic performance. If you're a black person and you're expected to be um, less intelligent, that can affect your, you know, your intellect. And so stereotype threat is something that we talk about a lot in medicine because people of color who are in medicine face this every day. And, and we know even if they walk in with identical GPAs and identical um, test scores, their performance doesn't match up um, with whites who had similar GPAs and similar test scores. So just I, I want to be clear. So when in that study, when the, those black men were told it was a, a test of their intelligence, their scores went down. They did go because down. They had internalized yeah, the stereotype. That pressure. That that means that talking about GPA and test scores, they're even if they're the same numbers, they're not equal because the the black man or black woman had to work even harder to get that score because they had to work through their own both societal, communal, and personal biases built in. Yeah, they achieved those Jeez. scores despite wow those sorts of things. Yeah, we we've talked about it a lot on our podcast, but we try to tell our listeners that white privilege is a real thing doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you didn't work hard for what you have. It just means that the struggles you had weren't because of the color of your skin. You may have had struggles, but it wasn't because it may not have been because of your gender or your religion or your sexual identity. And somebody else in the same situation would have had to go through the same struggles you did 
plus additional ones on top of it. Yeah, I completely agree. And another little pearl I shared with the young minds at Booker T as they were graduating was that everyone has a window of opportunity. That That is 100% true. But everybody's window looks different, right? For some of us, it's a big old window, right? A, a bay window. You can walk right through it. For others, it is a window that's closing. You got to crawl through it. And some people literally have to pry it open and, and crawl through it. And so just understanding that privilege, again, just like I say, we have to destigmatize implicit bias. We need to destigmatize what it means to have privilege. We all have privileges, right? It's not anything we need to feel ashamed about. It's just something we need to recognize and recognize that not everyone else has had the same privileges that we. If it wasn't, and maybe this is part of why it, you know, stays in place is like, if we just talked about it and be like, it's okay to feel uncomfortable about this, you would feel le- less uncomfortable over time, but we don't even get to those conversations until you're an adult. Mm-hmm. And then you already have years of life experience fighting against something that you're trying to realize about yourself. Like if you were told it's okay that your first thought was bad, but recognizing that it was bad. And then what you do with that thought is the important part, not whether you have the thought or not. Yeah, I mean, the most important part of this whole implicit bias thing is is the recognition piece. Because if you don't recognize it, you're just, just going out there wreaking havoc <laughs> with bias, right? Um, but if you recognize those thoughts and, and are, find a ways to to call attention to it within yourself, you can, you, can, you can do something about it. And so, yeah, if we can somewhat, somehow make people feel okay that they have these sorts of ideas and thoughts. We can always think, I think all of us can think mm-hmm. of times where we have a thought, we're like, that was kind of dark. Yeah. That was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And then you take a step back, you do a little reset, and you're like, okay, I feel better. Okay, now that, that thought's a little better than the one I had initially. That's normal. That's yeah. just, that's normal. Especially as a, like, a religious minority, what I try to tell other white people is you have to remember, like, everyone has racist thoughts. It's whether you have the power to act on those thoughts or not. That's where prejudice comes in. That's where systemic racism comes in. Because minorities in this country don't have the power to do anything with their horrible thoughts. Doesn't mean they don't have them. They have them. It's what you do with it. Is there some kind of uh, like small activity from your workshop that you could kind of share yeah. with us that we could? Yeah, <laughs> one, one of my favorites. Um, and this, yeah, this, <laughs> is, uh, this is kind of an activity that I think brings some insight to people that they have these thoughts all, all the time. And I, I, I use uh, two images. Okay. One image is a fit, young, blonde, white lady who is um, jogging. And she is in a neighborhood that I found on the internet, but it looks a lot like Philbrook, big, huge mansion. Right. And I kind of set the stage and I tell everybody to clear their minds and then when I show the picture, they're already primed to pay attention to the very first thoughts that they have about the individual in the picture, right? And so some of the things that pop up is that, you know, she looks comfortable, right? She looks like she belongs, right? And so that association of what someone who lives in a neighborhood like that looks like. And then it really gets interesting because it's almost always a, a female who works that says she looks like she's a stay-at-home mom and that she has a husband, you know, 30, 40 Years her senior, and, and and we have some laughs. And my favorite one of all time is that she looks like someone who loves brunch. <laughs> all right, and you're like, I can see hey, that. you get it, right? I see that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And so it, it it just helps people realize that although we don't have 
nowhere near enough information to come to these conclusions that how that it happens really easily. And even when we're not prompted, we do it in the real world, probably even more than than on, during this exercise. And the flip side um, is someone I purposely do not use a black male because no one would say anything. I use a white male with his shirt off, tattoos, pants hanging below his butt, and and I put him in the same neighborhood, right? And it's just as quick as they said, she looks like she belongs. He looks out of place, right? He doesn't have a job. He's not out exercising. He's up to no good, right? And it just adds some teeth to the fact that we do this every single day, many times a day when we interact with people that we don't know well or that we don't know at all, or sometimes people that we know pretty well. I think I've actually done a similar test like that. And yeah, the white lady jogging, it's pretty funny, but it's, it's, it's showing you a very important lesson, which is that we make thousands of assumptions a day Mm -hmm. in our world. One thing I ask ask people to do and when they're talking about this sort of thing is when they're back in the real world, they're out of this workshop is pay attention to the people that make them feel uncomfortable and try to figure out why that dude makes you feel uncomfortable. Is it because he does awkward stuff and you should feel uncomfortable or is it because nothing related to him, but he reminds you of someone you met years ago or he reminds you of a character on a movie or a TV show and maybe it's more about you than it is about I think about that a lot, like in downtown when I'm approached by homeless people and how I respond to them and why I respond differently to some versus others. And is it w- what I'm thinking about? Is it, am, am I comfortable? Am I uncomfortable? Is it hot? <laughs> you know, do I have any cash on me? Like if I, if I already feel bad about the interaction that's going to happen, do I overtly be like more aggressive in my no? Cause I don't want to have to explain to the person I don't have any money to give them, you know, it gets complicated and deep, but it's an important activity to do. We've been talking for a while. I just want to know how, how our listeners can either connect with you or there's any way they can help out with, with what you do. Yeah, absolutely. A few ways that you can con- connect with me. Um, I am on Twitter, uh, Jabron Pasha, simple. Uh, I am on Instagram where I kind of have a medical tilt, but it's at what medicine did. And I have a website for my implicit bias work and it's unlockingimplicitbias.com. And drop me a message there. It'll come straight to my email. Um, if you want to learn more, if you have any specific questions, um, easy to reach. Um, feel free to, to reach out. And my podcast is Lean In with Dr. Jabron Pasha. It's everywhere podcasts are available. So we are about halfway uh, through the season. Um, new episodes come out on Tuesday. So we'll have an episode coming out tomorrow. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And if you like it, give me a rating. If you don't like it, keep your mouth shut. Exactly. <laughs> so the last thing we ask our guests when we're allowed to interview in person is for you to sort of look around my nerd cave and find something that either calls to you or something you're like, what is this? Please explain it to me. That I'm just going to have to ignore, but I, I see the Golden Girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Pop, the, a popular the, choice, the Golden Girls. Bobblehead Golden Girls. I see Schmeagle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ninja Turtles. I love all of that stuff. But yeah. I think what contrasts the nerdy stuff is the fact that someone is a, a runner. I like running. I've, I was v- very overweight in high school. And uh, when I, first I started the exercise bike that my parents had in their house. Uh, and then I started running for a long time. And it wasn't until I moved back here that I realized like the runs in Boston were too intense. So it did, didn't even occur to me to enter them. But my co-host here, Chris, was running mm-hmm. 5Ks all the time. And so I just started doing it. And I was at 10Ks before the pandemic hit. Not very fast. I was at T-Town one. I was... I kept passing and then falling behind an old man speed walking, but <laughs> I finished. 
<laughs> so of course that was also the one we did after the the zoo beer tasting. So now my best 10k. So there's something very cathartic about running, and even though it's terrible for your body, apparently, but I love it. I, I think that that dose of running that's okay. Yes, yeah. When you start running you know, marathons and ultra marathons, that is terrible for your heart. It's terrible yeah. for your joints. But I think 10ks and 5ks. That's that's yeah. That's healthy. Mm-hmm. What's weird is there's not a there's not a logical leap after a 10k. And you've got the half marathon, but that's not that much more than a 10K. Yeah. Is there a 15K? I feel like sometimes. Mm, no, it's just like you go for 10K, half, then a half, and then. Well, there's no logical no next step after half. a 10K. I'd love to do a marathon. On the other hand, I don't want to do a marathon. because Yeah, the idea of it hurt. is the challenge of it kind of appeals to me, but I just don't run. I hate running. So I will never <laughs> run a marathon, but I like, I understand why people do. Yeah. You, you were training for the Ironman before the pandemic hit. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not. Nope. <laughs> so I wouldn't make it through the swim. The swim has been interesting. I'd never done any open water swimming before, and it just feels different than swimming in a pool. Just can't control the waves. You can't control the wind. It just, it's different. Yeah. So, yeah swimming is exhausting. Oh, yeah. That's the yeah. most impressive part to me, I think. It's, mm-hmm. it's like that's two, part two that 2.4 miles or something. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing about certain minority groups not having training in swimming because they don't have access to pools. So no. that, that's a whole thing that, uh, comes up in different sports. So, well, so what you have to choose your favorite of my running medallions and we'll take a picture of you with it. So thank you so much for uh, yeah. taking the time to talk with us today. And this, hopefully our audience learned a lot. I certainly did. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah. It's good to meet you guys. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Gibran. You can check out his podcast, Lean In, anywhere podcasts can be found. The same places where you can find Pod for Good. So please subscribe or follow or whatever Apple, uh, whatever term Apple is using for it now, do that. If you're interested in his um, um, implicit bias workshops, you can find more information at unlockingimplicitbias, all one word, dot com. And please make sure to at least follow us, Pod for Good, on Facebook, on Instagram, and the Twitter. And of course, if you want, if you want to have me read something live on air, leave us an Apple Podcast review. As always, get it done, Telsa. And if you haven't yet, get the vaccine shot and the second one. What's wrong with you? <laughs>